0: Sales skills in the post pandemic economy are under some pretty serious investigation and examination right now to determine whether or not there have been real systemic and structural changes in what's necessary in order to be a successful salesperson. So I wanted to bring somebody that I know who has been in the sales game for a really long time. In this instance, Chris Bial has been in sales for 30 years and he's led software startups as a founder or an early stage developer for most of that time and he believes that the most powerful part of a software system is the human being and that the value key is to let the computer do what it does well, go fast without getting bored, in order to free up human potential. So Chris has a lot of experience and has a lot to offer on this topic and I thought it would be really, really interesting to see where his head is at with respect to this topic I thought it was a really interesting interview. Give it a listen. On the one hand, there's Chris, the guy that works for an organization full of people who have had just stellar careers and sold a bunch and done big numbers. And you work with really big clients to deliver your product and the solution that it provides. And yet the work that the clients are doing with your product very much looks like what most of us have to do on a day-in and day-out basis from a sales activity perspective, no? Oh, uh, yeah, pretty much. Uh, they got For one thing, they got to go find people to sell to. And put it together in a way that maybe the phone might ring. And now I, ne- I need to be able to say something in that moment to be able to entice that prospect to continue the conversation with me. So, while Chris, you and I, in some ways would say like, oh my God, there's so much about selling that is different than it used to be. Nothing replaces those first seven seconds when you're trying to get someone's attention and you have that opportunity, right? So in your opinion, how is it the same these days and how has it changed? And what's your advice for people who are desperately afraid to pick up the phone and call somebody?
1: Ooh. Three questions. I like it. So what stayed the same is just the most fundamental thing about B2B. And we only know about B2B. I don't know anything about B2C. I suck as a consumer. If you ask me whether I should buy a you know, a Tesla or a, you know another copy of my 22-year-old Ford Excursion, I probably am in hot quite a little bit. But I know a little something about B2B because I've been immersed in it for 40-something years and started studying it, I'm afraid, when I was Inadvertently at the age of eight, reading Peter Drucker and stuff like that. <laughs> what did I know? You know, the books were in the house. We lived out in the desert and you had to read something, at least I did. So, you know, the one thing has always stayed the same at B2B, which is it's a scary business being a B2B buyer, a person who's responsible for a considered purchase. Your career is on the line. You know, it's on the line. It's kind of an all downside situation, actually. You know, it's like, okay, we asked you to make sure that we got the right system, X, Y, Z, the right thing to solve, whatever. And so you get the right thing and you're at neutral and you get the wrong thing, which is almost everything. And you're sort of screwed. So that's a, uh, that's the nature of the beast. And it's only brave people who are decision makers in the world of B2B buying, but they're brave and they're cautious at the same time. Cause they're rational. They know they're putting their kids college education, their career, their you know, I'm overstating it, but I'm not overstating it, no, right? When you're either. afraid of something, you're really afraid of it. It's all, it's all there is to it. Yeah. So that's never changed. And I think that's the bedrock of B2B. And that's what folks often forget when they think, oh, things are changing. Well, maybe it'll become like B2C. The way it works is this. If I buy a Tesla and then I find out I'm allergic to electricity, and I get to dump that car because, you know, it just turns out, oh, my God, I didn't know the electrons or you know, make me sneeze or something. Then uh, what am I out? I'm out with some money. That's it. I do the same thing at the same price point, a little seventy thousand dollar system or whatever for, for my company. And say I'm in my position, I'm the CEO and I screw it up. I get the wrong vendor. The thing doesn't integrate. People hate it. That's a real problem. And so I'm going to be cautious and my problem is i'm a cautious generalist being sold to by a specialist who knows more than me so in general i'm going to go with no decision and that's why b2b is full of no decision that just never changes you know folks talk about no decision like you could overcome no decision with this closing technique or this or that trust me until they trust you more than they trust themselves they're going with no decision they start with no decision. They're staying with no decision until they trust you more than they trust themselves, not more than they trust the other guy more than they trust themselves because okay. you're the expert. They're the generalist.
0: Okay. okay. and so This is intriguing. All right. So we're going to, we're going to unpack this. If you guys are not nerdy salespeople, you're going to probably shut this off pretty quick because <laughs> like, we're going to get in here. Okay. Because no decision is fist bump, dude, that that is the God's honest truth. It's not, me or somebody else. It's me or I just won't do anything. And there's actually formulaic equations that have been created by mathematicians to try to break this uh, concept down into something that we can study. And as a field of study, it's fascinating to examine the characteristics. And we as salespeople have a tendency to overgeneralize when we talk about trust and say, people buy from people they know, like, and trust. First of all, with not a very good understanding of what that even means, but more so not even really understanding what the word trust really means because it's a slippery word. It means a lot of different things for a lot of different people. And so by creating an environment where you can be crystal clear about what trust looks like to you, what you're doing in that process of trying to build to a decision no decision moment with that buyer is you've put them in that position that you've described but now the most amazing thing that happened chris is during the pandemic the stakes got higher mm-hmm. so before the no decision was i'm just going to stick with my original vendor now the no decision is i don't know what to do so i'm going to do nothing and it's com- that's a very different no decision scenario than in the pre-pandemic when it was just, I don't have time because we're so busy trying to get our orders out the door that I don't really have time to evaluate you against my existing vendor. So you may be better, but I don't have time to care. Now, oh my God, you look like you would be such a better vendor for me, but I am desperately afraid that if I make the wrong choice, that not only might this somehow negatively affect our morale, our culture, like what if it it bankrupts our company? What if we get canceled because the choice we made is somehow so unpopular that all of my employees go on Glassdoor and write negative reviews of me and now no one wants to work here,
1: right? Yeah, yeah. Well, you hit upon another, this is the biggest change and this is the change that was triggered by the pandemic but is not actually part of the pandemic at all. And, and people get very confused about this in general. They, folks are, are conflating stuff that has to do with the pandemic while it's running and stuff that has to do with changes that were triggered by the pandemic that are now permanent. And the biggest change that was triggered by the pandemic and is now permanent is a reasonable subset of our economy discovered that they can work from anywhere. And while that doesn't affect every job, it does affect every job because people are married to other people. People are living in various, you know, they, they don't just live alone like little, oh, here's my little unit and I got them to move over here and they're, they're in my, you know, within commute distance of where I, uh, my company's headquarters or factory or whatever is and now they're stuck, right? So we, this is the thing that, that has generally gone away, not 100%, but it has gone away in a big way. And that is the subsidy we used to get from the lack of ability of people to work for somebody far away from where they live, which basically allowed us as employers to pay down instead of paying up because this person was stuck. They're stuck. It's it's a funny word to use, but they really were stuck. They're stuck in their neighborhood. They're stuck in their community. They're stuck at their church. They're stuck because that's what they love. And now the question is, do they love their job? And then it's going to come down to, to, well, do you love them? And, you know, people don't love what doesn't love back. And it's not very common for employers to think about, well, you know, loving the people who work for them. But that's new. And that is new and it's permanent. And folks who think that it's going to reverse someday where the employer is going to have that upper hand and is going to be able to basically sort of order people where to live and how to live. Those, those people are going to be out-competed by people who can get that talent and get it more flexibly. So the biggest change, I think, is that we used to, I think, correctly imagine that everybody was desperate for cash. They needed to make a, a, a living. Uh, they are their own resources. That is, they eat while they sleep, right? Their, their overhead is burning their life away in, a, in an economic kind of sense. And therefore, our job that we're offering them has the feel of a lifeline. And they're stuck with us or other employers who are within reach. And given uh, how many things have moved overseas in the supply chain, a lot of those jobs are already out of reach, so to speak, to commuters. Uh, So now you have this very interesting situation of 30 years of offshoring and a pandemic that sent the knowledge workers home. And you kind of get a two for one. Mm -hmm. And that two for one means us employers no longer get the subsidy. We actually have got to figure out how to make these jobs much more, not just palatable, but something that you want to be part of somehow. And I, don't, I think that's a tough one for a lot of employers, and they're grappling with it. You know, my fiance, Helen, she's writing a book on the subject. It's called, yeah, she's a, a tough minded uh, MIT engineer who happens to be in the upper ranks of sales at one of the biggest companies in the world, maybe mm-hmm. the biggest company in the world by value. And uh, she carries, you know, a quota that's got a lot, a lot, a lot of zeros, a lot mm-hmm. more than I do. and uh, And she's writing a book called Love Your Team. And it's a hard-nosed handbook on sales management in the hybrid world. And the hybrid world goes on forever. That's what we live in now. So that has changed and it, so the change isn't so much the people you're selling to. The human element of getting trust, and, and by the way, it's, the order is not know, like, and trust. you got to be trusted first. If you're going to be trusted more than somebody trusts themselves eventually, your first step has to be trust. <laughs> you know? You're not going to get to that last one unless you take it as your first one and then don't blow it. Yeah. So that has not changed. I think in that sense, very little has changed about B2B sales. It's a little harder to get a hold of people, and that's just a fact. I mean, that's what our business does is we make that problem go away, but the fact
0: that we can make it go away makes it not actually very interesting. Rewind the tape just for a second. So, like, the only thing nuance-wise that I've been able to point at and say, hey, this is how selling as a discipline has been dramatically impacted by the way we have to do the things we ordinarily did pre-pandemic. Most of the time in high stakes selling, especially, but this is pretty universal, but especially when it's enterprise level selling, Mm -hmm. the stuff you find out in the intimate off the cuff, not during the actual meeting conversations are the things that both the buyer and seller knew that they could look forward to to exchange what really needed to be shared in a way that would allow for the transaction to continue and we've lost it how can we take those quiet intimate discussions we used to have and create a new forum for them in a way that still fosters their their existence you're participating at the High end of the spectrum, your wife is participating at the high end of the spectrum. Are you seeing a similar um, situation there or how, how does what you're seeing compare and contrast?
1: Well, I'd make two, two distinctions. So one is the not being able to physically get together with people is not really a, a side effect of work from anywhere as much as it is a temporary, I'll call it. we don't know how temporary, but a temporary phenomenon within the pandemic itself. So some industries, people will truly be at the quote-unquote office. Um, Onshore factories are more like that than most, but their knowledge workers may not be there. You know, it's really interesting. The conversations, those offline conversations, those intimate conversations, they still take place, but they tend to take place with a text message followed by a cell phone call. Mm -hmm. And they're not within the Zoom world. They're not within that context. They're the thing before, the thing after. Yep. and there's some of that always going on. I do it myself. I have one right now at the end of this conversation, where I'll be getting on with somebody who's actually uh, very highly placed in this company that I do business with, who's who's going to be helping me out, thinking through some details of a concept that I have for our next year together. It's a te- the text message came in while I was on my previous podcast uh, as a as a host, and the conversation will. Take place, and it'll be plenty intimate because it's just the two of us. So I, I actually think there's a lot of ways to get that stuff done. Um, but long sales cycles, if they're if they're a feature of your of your sector, they're irrelevant unless you run out of money. It's just it's as simple as that. I mean, that's always been true of business, right? It's like, well, it's raining everywhere. Okay, well, do, do you have an umbrella? Because if you have one and nobody else has one, it's good that it's raining. That's yeah, not about the rain. <laughs>
0: If it all has changed and yet it's all stayed the same, where would you suggest for those of us who maybe aren't operating at the uh, uh, EBITDA numbers that you're dealing with when it comes to the different things that we might be paying attention to when it comes to our sales efforts in 2022?
1: Well, you might, my advice to everybody is always a little contradictory to what they're generally going to hear. So when supply is short, build massive pipelines demand pipeline don't you can't do anything about the short supply it's just, you got to wait it out right you, yeah sure you got to treat you got to treat uh, your your sourcing and procurement activities as though they're sales activities and you got to put more oomph behind them right yep. you got to be ready to uh to decide do i want external money as a buffer or am i willing to take the same money in the form of of paying up for supply but the thing that will determine your actual success is not the size of your pipeline, but it's the breadth of your pipeline as things start to turn, because that gives you more options, more choices. My dad told me something a long time ago, and he was not big into giving business advice, even though he's a very good business guy. But he said, you know, you're never as you're never any better than your worst customer. Mm. And that's a question of choice. And that's where quantity becomes quality. Then, By quantity, I don't mean quantity of dollars. We tend to seek quantity of dollars in our pipeline. But in a portfolio sense, what we want is quantity of choices of who we're going to do business with. When we're in uncertain times, we should maximize the number of choices we have as things start to play out. Because the definition of uncertainty is we don't know how they're going to play out. Right. So get a big portfolio of what, The other guys not getting which is the trust relationships at all sorts of stages right so i say pave the market with trust and then harvest that trust over the time allotted to you by nature
0: playing the long game when there's a lot of stakes is a really really nerve-wracking game to play in a lot of ways but having a, a strong sense of the purpose around why you're doing what you're doing can oftentimes serve as sort of the beacon to get you through periods of rough stretches like this. Right. And in a time when trust is paramount, if you can be seen as an expert with a solution that people are like, don't even yet know that they need and you can show it to them, that's fish in a barrel. I mean, so you, you know, you're hitting the nail on the head from, uh, uh, uh paving it with trust, but are there specific activities like, you know, sales-based activities are span the gamut. There's so many different things that a salesperson would want to tell you as a sales-based activity, but from a purely building trust perspective, what's, what's the one you would say like, Hey, if you're really trying to do what I'm talking about, do this.
1: Well, this is where I get a little parochial. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm stuck and I have to apologize for being stuck. I run a company called Connect and Sell and we let people talk to lots of people in B2B. What do I mean? I mean? It's like push a button, wait a 3 or 4 minutes or 2 minutes or 5 minutes or whatever and talk to somebody on your list. If you can do that and you can, you know as much as you want and it's not cheap, so you kind of have to decide that you want to do it. Yeah. And you can build trust in the first seven seconds of the conversation, which is what Chris Voss, uh, who says the, the FBI and all those experts have figured out. You have seven seconds to get somebody to trust you and you know how to do it. And it's very technical, actually. It's, it's easy. It's straightforward, but it's technical. You know, you've got to show the other person that you see the world through their eyes and then you have to demonstrate to them that you're competent to solve a problem they have right now. Thank God the problem is you. You just cold called them. So you are competent to solve that problem. And as long as you're just focused on getting trust and you believe that's a win, and then you see what can happen later, which is uh, to talk to them in a different way. Not on that call, but on a later call. So if you have a reason that somebody might benefit from having a conversation with you, and you truly believe that they have a good chance of benefiting, no matter what the future might bring, then it's really straightforward to to actually truly pave the market with, you know, with high quality trust, right? With trust that's durable. And that is just talk to more people, have meetings with them. I mean, make a list with a hypothesis. If that a hypothesis, you're crazy. Ask yourself, what am I expert at that I can help somebody understand better? What is something that is economically interesting to them about that? What's something that is emotionally concerning to them about that? And what's something that is strategically blocking their way right now to get where they want to go I, I probably could help in any of those areas I'm not hundred percent sure if you're hundred percent sure you probably are not being realistic and then have a conversation a brief five second you know or five sentence conversation to get them to take a meeting with you yep. and and talk to them the fact is nobody is going to give you opportunities if you don't talk to them and nobody's going to settle for a cold call but a cold call is required in order to to get into a trust relationship with somebody you don't know, the irony is you got to ambush people in order to to help them. I uh, got a a friend uh, his name's Scott Webb. He's with a, a big company called Hub International, and he once told me he said the mindset that I have when I cold call somebody is this: I'm pulling them out of the way of a speeding
0: bus. I love it. I was at an event yesterday with a group of people that. It's always good when you're in a room of people that you know are going to stretch you. What I recognize and realize about that group of entrepreneurs is when they walk up to you, they make you feel like, oh, my God, I'm so glad I have this opportunity to talk to you because I know something very specifically about you. Don't know you but I know people that do what you do. And I know something very specific about a problem that people like you have. And I'm desperate to tell you about it because I know that you're going to be really excited to hear it. And if you don't mean that, it sounds like every bad salesperson you've ever met. (laughs) But if it's true and you actually believe it and you have the goods, then why would you not want to have that conversation with people? But the hard part is the going to the gym part is, putting in the time to be able to be in that moment, so that when you get that opportunity, you're not full of shit. You actually are saying something that that person really should hear. And that's where the real rubber meets the road, Chris. I mean, right?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah, it's, it's funny too. I compare it to surfing. I'm not a surfer, but I know some surfers. And it's like, you think, if you were thinking I'm gonna become a surfer, would you go out and try to make your own surfboard? You'd be out of your mind, right? That's there's there's 80 years of deep experience across generations and hundreds of thousands or millions of surfboards shaped in different ways. And folks have figured that out. So you're a fool to shape your own surfboard. And you're a fool to make up your own language around the psychology part of an encounter with another human being. It's Mm -hmm. it's studied, understood. And that's where it's this is really tricky. Folks think, oh, well, I'm natural. I'm a natural kind of sales guy. I can just talk to anybody. No one is natural at handling an ambush where you are a scary, invisible stranger. So they're thinking of their own fear, which is a narcissistic kind of view. You have to be empathetic and think about the other person's fear. You just ambush them and they can't see you. In the environment of evolution, that's the worst thing in the world. Invisible strangers means bad people here at night. Well, when you cold call somebody, you are a bad person there at night because you're invisible and you're a stranger. That sounds bad. It's a technically, it's a psychologically technical matter to know what to do with that. The odds that you're going to stumble on it are about zero. The odds that you're going to figure this one out for yourself are like the odds you're going to make your own surfboard and then make yourself into a great surfer. Start with some really good beginner surfboard and then learn this thing about your balance and how to be an artist on it first by not just falling off the damn thing. And it takes, it takes instruction, it takes practice, and it takes an expert who's going to set it up. That's, your script is your surfboard. Have somebody else make it for you. That's a crazy thing to do for yourself. The surfer is the voice. And you're going to work on your voice because your voice carries almost all the information in a first conversation and your words carry almost none of it. The words are a scaffolding on which your voice is draped in order to make something beautiful.
0: The thing that's really interesting to me in in this portion of the discussion is trying to get people to recognize that the reason why salespeople don't like being in sales are the same reason that bad surfers don't like the surfboard. It's because they don't trust all of what's come before them to just know that why would I even bother? But if I commit to that, then if it's not successful, it's on me. And that's the most scary part of them. Yeah. Right. So I'll rather flail about in the ocean and say that I was trying knowing full well that the likelihood of my success is almost nil then to follow the tried and true path that if I'm willing to commit to, will actually lead to my success because then I actually have to do the work.
1: Yeah. And then you have to, you, you got to deal with yourself,
0: which is not pleasant, right? I mean, well, and so this is to me, the favorite part of it is once you commit to the script, once you've given over to the fact that you don't need to worry about that part of it, that's where the real creativity comes from your own voice is How are you going to deliver what it is you're trying to say based on the reactions you're getting from the different people you're interacting with? Because that's the real improv of sales is I don't have to worry about what I'm going to say. I'm just watching how you react so I can see if I've done something that seems like it's going to work for you.
1: I love how you brought up improv. You know, (laughs) the late Robin Williams is one of the, the greatest performers in entertainment ever to live. And Robin Williams is generally seen by the public as somebody who was always spontaneous. He was the most scripted, practiced person on earth. Everything he did was scripted. Everything he did was practiced. That's why it was so great. That's why it came off so naturally. That's how he could be himself. He he was so practiced, he could always be himself. Yeah, it's like a great surfer can wave to their friend on the beach and not fall off the damn surfboard. Because so the nice. waiting to the friend on the beach isn't the surfing. They they can get away with it, right? You can do a lot of stuff within that envelope. The funny part is the the hard bit, the really hard bit is the first seven seconds. And it's also the easiest to learn. You have seven seconds to get trust. This is a human being. The beauty of cold calling, by by the way, is every single person you call has something weird in common. They're all human. That you can rely on. So rely on that. And if you rely on that and you master, what is it like to get another human being to trust you in seven seconds? Yeah. Then you, essentially you win 100% of the calls. Now, if you want more and who doesn't go shoot for more, but if you don't
0: get it, remember you already won. I love it. That's awesome. All right. I, uh, someone's going to be interested in, in getting into Chris's universe. Where do you, where do you, how do you want them to go do that? Well, let's see. I'm chris.beal at connectandsell.com,
1: but I get 897 emails a day, so I'm not sure I'll see anybody's. Uh, I'm out on LinkedIn. That's a little easier. At least once a week, I'll check all the invites. So I'm easy to find Chris Beal, CEO of Connect and Sell. But if you really want to get into my world, check out my podcast with Corey Frank. It's called marketdominanceguys.com. And we've had a couple people actually binge listen for four days and then remake their businesses around it. These people are uh, some of the smartest people I know. So either it's really good or smart people are really crazy.
0: Chris, that was good stuff, man. I appreciate you taking the time and uh, I look forward to our next discussion.
1: All right, Roger. Thanks so much for having me on. It's fantastic.
0: Holy, holy, holy cow, Batman. There was a lot of value to be had in that episode You can really sense that Chris is a sales veteran and has been in the game at the enterprise level for a really, really long time. And that notion of overcoming the no decision on the part of your prospect really is one of the most prevailing problems that we as practitioners of sales face in our day-to-day activities. So knowing and recognizing that it's important to try to create situations that do not end up in a no decision oftentimes are the key for successful selling for those of us who are struggling to reach the number in what's going on in this pandemic-driven economy. And it's clear to me that Chris has a lot of surfer friends because he spent a lot of time talking about the analogy of surfing and why it's important to not try to step out and do things that would be considered uh, outside of the norm when you're learning how to be a successful salesperson, because so much of that work has been done on your behalf in advance. So why try to spend all of that time building things that aren't necessarily worth the investment? And, you know, uh, the one saying that he said is that words are the scaffolding on which your voice is draped in order to make something beautiful. And by relying on a script, it gives you the opportunity to get really comfortable with what it is that you're saying So that you can be working on trying to create those relationships and that trust in the fastest manner possible, which was really the prevailing thought when it comes to this discussion is you've got seven seconds to build trust with someone when you get them on the phone. Why not try to be as skilled at that as you possibly can be? So if you found value in that and if you think that there are other people out there who are struggling with cold calling and trying to develop their technique to make that be something that they're better at, please share this episode with them. I think there was a lot to be gained from that discussion when it comes to that skill development, and I think that anybody who would be willing to listen to it would have an opportunity to take something away from it that might be actionable. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the program. We're always looking to grow our subscriber base because that is what our guests look at when they are considering coming on the show. So if we're going to continue to bring high-value guests to the program, it is incumbent upon all of you to keep the momentum behind that piece of what we do going so as to continue to bring the high-quality content. Until our next episode, this is Roger signing off.